Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I am your host, Vincent Aiello. Back on episode 68, my guest shared great information on the JAS-39 Gripen, the Swedish-built Omnirol fighter strike and reconnaissance aircraft, but Duke's awareness on the ENF models was limited because he had not flown them. So to help fill in the gaps, as well as update us on what's new with the latest Gripen models in the two years since that episode aired, today we welcome to the show Yusi Halmatoja of Saab AB. Thanks for joining us, Miyagi. Hey, Jello. Thank you very much for those uh, welcoming words and the opportunity to work with you on the pod. So looking forward to uh, doing my very best to update you on all the new Gripenese stuff, what you need to know. For sure. And before we do dive into it, let's find out a little bit about you. I'm guessing you have some military flying experience before joining Saab? Yeah, sure. I've spent uh, almost 25 years in the Swedish Air Force before joining. So I'll just give you a very brief background on where I come from, actually. It's a sure. bit odd for a Finnish guy when I was actually born in Finland in the mid-70s. And then uh, the first six years over there and then uh, moved with my family to Sweden. And that's kind of the whole thing. First flying uh, uh, sparks were really lit by mom's new husband, who was a very keen uh, military aviation enthusiast and fan. So I think this all really started. So after the mandatory military service, which we have in Sweden, was a year and a half army rangers up in the north. Looking at those kind of cool jets up there in the sky and thinking about why cool. That's really where I want to be. So the very next day after the service ended, uh, I traveled down to Stockholm to do the few days of tests and assessment. And yeah, look, lucky enough to hang in there until the end. So uh, just an uh, interesting fact here. I just remember my mom's husband's words. Somebody needs to fly those tests, so why should not be you? So that's kind of <laughs> the whole philosophy I had mm-hmm. with it. So let's go for it. Flying-wise, started off uh, Viggen in northern Sweden back in 1998. It was in spring after a training program. So we start off at ground attack recce, and then after a few years, transitioning onto air defenders. Also did some EW, twin stick operations for a while there before actually moving on to Gripen. So a day in 2005, got the question if I'd like to join the, the uh, Gripen operational test team here in Linköping in the middle of Sweden. So yeah, that was a, kind of an early transition for me and a really great opportunity. Two years there, quickly, and then uh, got another question to join uh, Flight Test Procurement Agency. So that gave me also opportunity to do uh, some uh, training in uh, Mojave, the national TPS, and also yeah. U.S. Navy, Pax River, with great calls with lots of focus on flying cool jets and less on the reports and academics. <laughs> After that quick staff tour, which you have to do sometimes, I had opportunity to do on Meteor. Ram missile in UK as a Swedish representative. Really good times, interesting times when we fielded that one into service back in 2016. And uh, yeah, there we go. And then uh, finally, a strange uh, novel idea to finally live and work in the same city appeared. <laughs> so I joined Saab where I do operational advice and uh, analysis and uh, like a subject matter expert in the role of group and development and marketing support role. So that's kind of a brief story. Very good. All right. Well, so I just re-listened to episode 68 the other day, and Duke pointed out many of the Gripen E upgrades, such as the bigger engine, improved cockpit displays, and additional weapons stations and fuel capacity. But let's start with a step back and address a more broad topic. Why did Saab choose to build the Gripen E in the first place? Yeah, that's a very good question, Mike and Jello. And I'm sure I could spend hours or days explaining all that. We don't have that. I do my very best to give you a crisp answer here. And yeah, Duke, actually a very good mate of mine from the same year class in Air Force Academy, a good friend. So without trying to steal too much of his thunder, I'd like to start by explaining just briefly some aspects of 
the strategic uh, geopolitical location of Sweden. Mm-hmm. Then also take you back in just a little bit in time to try and explain some rationales and design concepts and the reasons behind certain choices of Britain. So, but yeah, Sweden located in the Baltics buffer between West and East NATO and potential Eastern threat, which is now very much a relevant threat. Mm. And looking at the map, you will see that Sweden and Finland actually is enjoying, if that's the right word in present circumstance, one third of the total border towards the big country in the East. So, which means been living on the front line since the beginning of the Cold War with the Eastern threat at our doorstep very much. So a lot of decades of high activity. So saying that it's uh, many of the first encounters of new Russian systems on the ground in surface and in the air were actually spread the images by Swedish Air Force, if you look at Jane's publications from the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. So that's where really kind of come from strategically. And that's kind of the reason and rationale behind many of design and the tactics and procedures we've been developing over the years. And we'll come back to that a little bit later in the pod. Right. Our main mission to defend the nation of Sweden in Sweden or next in international waters against this adversary with some luxury of choosing their time space and method of aggression. So uh, to be ready at all times against adversary as superior numbers. You know, we would have thought the Cold War is history. And now here with recent events in Eastern Europe, it sounds like it's in a way kind of back again. And so how does the Grip and E address this current world order and modern threats? Yeah, back a little bit to the mission of my Air Force. It's uh, always primarily been very much focused on the counter-air operations, so air-to-air Air Force, really. So the critical mission for us against threats like Sukhoi 35s, 34s, and new LO platforms such as uh, the Sukhoi 57, we are in the beginning. As soon as we take off, we are risking of being inside a hostile anti-access area denial defense zone. That's our reality with threats comprising of S400, 500, some systems with modern sensors. So this is the whole thing. It requires us to kind of optimize our systems, to be smart, develop superior tactics, to trying to be the best, to create means to be operationally flexible, to be better and to be smarter than the guys on the other side. So it comes to the flexibility part, really, on off the operations. Can you give us a rundown of some of the most notable improvements of the Gripen E over previous models? Again, Duke took a stab at some of them, but sounds like you have a little more recent experience. It's designed to do the same mission, to really counter the threat from the 2030, 2035, and up until 2060 plus. So that's the mission. And to be able to do it operation from air dispersed operations, road bases in the middle of the forest in somewhere in Sweden, and to enjoy that flexibility. So looking at the most notable improvements between Group A to C and E, the task to counter a threat in the 2030 to 2035 timeframe up until 2060 plus and beyond. This is what Group A is really designed to fight and survive against. So we must build capabilities that can perform in a, a robust way in these operations. So ensured survivability, lethality, and the flexible operations in the dense uh, multi-domain very heavily contested EW uh, countermeasure battlefield. So, so for the naked eye, really, if you look at Group E, it looks very much like the same bird that flew first time in December 1988. But believe me, it's, however, a completely different animal from that. So first of all, looking at airframe, it is bulkier with addition of some 30% more internal fuel, which is quite significant. So it's mainly due to some new airframe and landing gear designs. And increased number of hard points to 10 compared to the 8 in the Gripen C. 
which gives you a 702 plus, which means seven long sticks at one given moment for the net row, which is yep. uh, really nice. And then, of course, sensors, entirely new sensor suite is being designed for Gripen and comprising of active and passive sensors, which give each platform very flexible acquisition capability against all kinds of uh, modern threats. I would like to say also that we've taken the very best EW electronic warfare system we could find on the market. And when we've kind of built Gripen around that, mm-hmm. that's one way of doing it. New radar, the new electronically scanned uh, Raven E array, and it's mounted on swashplate in the nose. Uh, which gives us a kind of over-the-shoulder tracking acquisition and missile support capability. Oh, wow. That's really great for kind of the BBR fight to maintain your standoff F-poles and A-poles, you know. Yeah, yeah. Capabilities work air, ground, and surface simultaneously with the radar and all the weapon systems. So it's built-in kind of inherent flexibility to do those. Final thing I'm going to say about sensors is the new IRST, kind of a, by Leonardo. It's just located above the nose to look at that kind of LO threats in, in clear air environment. So all these new sensors provide a total sensor capability to us, enabling better earlier situation awareness than the adversary, giving you kind of the combat edge you're looking for. And not just today, but threats, you said, 10 years from now to 30 years from now. So that is a tall order. Now, Duke was really singing the praise of the previous Gripen models, saying it was made for the pilot, well-balanced, it carved through the air, I think were some of his terms. And then the quick turnaround time, does the Gripen E maintain all those, I would hope? Oh, yeah, that's one of the kind of driving requirements to be able to still do kind of air-to-air turnaround from in a forest uh, dispersed operation environments to do that in uh, kind of a 15 to 20 minutes time period. The requirements is really 15 minutes and it's still uh, really up there. And then uh, to be able to do it with a kind of a small team of uh, moderately trained conscripts, that's the main kind of idea. Properly motivated conscripts, I hope. Oh, well, they are, I think, especially now, uh, which is maybe. Yeah, uh, good. All right, Miyagi. So tell me the top three Gripen features, but particularly, right, there are some fifth generation platforms starting to enter service and proliferate. How does the Gripen E stack up against those? And what are your three favorite features? Yeah, it's a very good question. And another thing that I could probably write a book about, (laughs) but the top three, I would say, the number one is definitely going to be situational awareness, okay. kind of the smart data fusion. And the census we create, it just collects everything on the battlefield. So it provides the warfighter, the men and women in the cockpit with unique situational awareness, as well as a great platform for like intelligence surveillance missions as well. Mm-hmm. Data fusion is really a bread and butter for me. And I think it's by some manufacturers regarded as a unique fifth gen feature. I wouldn't really maybe agree to that. It's been used by many platforms for many years now. So. The situation awareness, how that is presented really to the pilot. It's no longer really kind of a perception comprehension thing where pilot has to do a lot of the work. It's now kind of come down to the presentation, interpretation of information to the pilots and then projecting what that information means. So giving you all the solutions to the what ifs and what's next. And I'll give you a few uh, smart examples of this, which is, can be a bit hard to maybe understand for a common man, but in a BVR, beyond visual range uh, engagement to get a peak projection of what is going on. You will always as a pilot enjoy full track data quality information. Okay, so how good is this track and where does it come from really? And mm-hmm. what can I do to improve the track quality to enhance my probability of intercept? So you get all these tactical suggestions. You get optimum turn evasion proposals, threat analysis of uh, hostile missiles and the threat reaction you should uh, propose to be taking. Also, a really nice, neat feature, which is really useful, is kind of the tactical air unit or foreship or what have you, 
to see the engagement status and many other things of your bodies, how they are doing and how the probability of intercept is for your bodies without having to mic on the radio and things. So many of kind of these smart details. So that's a long answer to number one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. No problem. Okay, I'll be keep it a bit shorter now. So number two. I think it's really kind of follow on to what I just said is that is really, in fact, built for the warfighter with very well designed tactical functions and well decision support with the operators always been the development loop. And that's one of the strengths that we in Sweden over here, we can at the first step of, say, uh, HMI PVI design. We take in uh, the Air Force weapons instructors, the skilled people to work from one day to look at one particular solution on maybe a PowerPoint slide, and then in the afternoon, flying that particular solution in the tactical simulator, and then redoing it the next week. And maybe two weeks after that, the same thing will be tested in the aircraft. So that's kind of how we build it. And that's really maybe, I think, the only way you can do it in a very rapid way to make it work. Then third and last, availability, flexibility. And I like to really describe availability in two different strands, which the first would be a kind of a relevant capability available when you need it. Now, and over time, the very fast updates to your tactical systems and your libraries to remain relevant. And this is particularly important in the gray phase where you will be having perhaps the first chance to see those real war mode emitters. So the second strand for availability and robustness is the highly technical availability and the robust fleet with the excellent sortie rates. So with easy and swift maintenance, as we just said. So availability numbers in the air. And there's a lot of debate about the kind of cost versus effect on different campaigns currently. And I can only comment that, that I would like to launch more aircraft with more weapons against enemy hordes in contrary to maybe using fewer specifically designed platforms. But that's me. Yeah. <laughs> we can debate that. Of course. It's funny though, Miyagi, because while you were speaking, I was thinking about, it's only been a hundred years since men went up and their scarves were blowing in the wind, right? And they were shooting machine guns through their propellers. And your number one was situational awareness. I think your number three is probably about the same, right? They had a lot of those aircraft and they were available because they were pretty basic wood and canvas and machine guns. But what a difference a century makes in fighting in the air where you had, right, your eyeballs and a machine gun versus what we have today. It's just sort of mind boggling. I can just tell it from my personal experience flying uh, kind of an obsolete by the time already reconnaissance ground attack vegan so looking at now these new functions in the wide area display one yeah. to the naked are notable difference in our cockpit now 19 times 8 inch display it's just kind of space age with all the situation awareness and all the tactical functions that what that can offer you in the fight it is really mind-boggling i do agree and that's just yeah. one generation that you've oh, seen yeah. right so oh, yeah. Mm. All right. So that means, of course, that mm. this isn't stopping. Progress is going to continue. Mm. What are some of the future enhancements planned for the Grip and E? For a fighter job like myself, I would always want to see more <laughs> new and improved ways to increase effect of the way that we can operate. So improving the operational robustness of the heavily contested mm -hmm. battle space. Uh, they're currently changing. And we are looking at ways to enhance robust communications, looking at kind of data link, which gives you better endurance, better robustness, and like lower probability of intercept. We've recently uh, launched a kind of a, a navigation in a GPS jam spoof environment. We all know that we've been sitting in an aircraft that how 
navigation inaccuracy can affect your situation awareness and track quality. So we looked at that. And also, of course, continuing with uh, ways to improve weapon engagement to kind of range performance acceleration is one thing, uh, not only, but reiterated that. So I'll give you one example. For Canada, we are now offering a low drag drop tank that can improve that. Oh, wow. And looking at also many other kind of reduced drag aspects, fuselage, what can do bit launches and hard points. I still haven't, have you, Jello, ever come across a pilot that has ever said, I'm just happy with my trust weight ratio. <laughs> I never have. <laughs> no, no, never have. <laughs> I never will. But that drop tank for Canada, is that because Canada is trying to select their next fighter? Yeah, that's related to that campaign requirement. But also, of course, we are like on a broader perspective looking at all ways we can improve. So that, sure. that's just one example that we're looking at. Another soft issue, if I may, we also kind of Scandinavian, quiet and modest. These days, we are trying to improve the real messaging. This is a good opportunity, Jello, sure. to tell the world about the product and how we believe it's successful in what it's doing. And uh, you see it's uh, all the time in the recently been a lot of bloggers and writers with a rather aggressive tone in many parts of messaging, I would say. So we are trying to be better and applying our Scandinavian modesty and would like to become better in describing our product. And that's what I guess. Yeah. That's kind of a soft, too hard and one soft topic we're trying to improve on. <laughs> well, and that's the way to go. And we're glad to help with that effort because we just want to get the truth out there and hopefully mm. people will find it informative and entertaining. Sure. But that being said, Miyagi, as you well know, right, the internet is fraught with mistruths and deception and everything else. And even Wikipedia, dare I say, I'm not always sure I can believe where's the best place to go besides the Fighter Pilot Podcast to learn more about the Grip and E or maybe Saab AB in general. Yeah, that's a good one too. Uh, I've thought about that a little bit and uh, perhaps alluded to before, we're trying to improve our, and tell our own story a bit clearer and uh, to briefly listen out there what we are and where we come from. So I think recently there's been a good and interesting story come out. It's one of my good colleagues, uh, Rich Smith, who's now working as deputy head of marketing here. So he's telling about the grip and E, the legacy and concepts, maybe directing it more towards the fighter procurement in Canada program. So that's a very good one and can be found online under Defense Deconstructed, I believe. The next one I just came out the other day is, uh, let me say, more leisurely fun. And I would recommend this one of the recent episodes of the C.W. Lemoyne, Mondays with Mover interview that can be found on YouTube. He just interviewed a very good mate, Bulan, call sign of mine, who is now uh, flying the grip and display at SAAB. Oh, very uh, he's working about a, a test pilot at the flight test center as well. So that's one. And then, of course, finally, uh, I think I would probably be sacked unless I said that we can always go to the SAAB website to see and uh, mm -hmm. a lot of information and nice images as well. Okay. So there's three. Well, if you can send us links for those, we'll be happy to put them in the notes for the show. Yeah, absolutely. That way people can just click right on them. Yeah. All right, cool. And where outside of Sweden is the Grip and E being proliferated? We talked about it's on its way maybe to Canada pending their decision, but is it already, what, in Brazil? Yeah, we have one uh, jet in Brazil in the heavy flight test program. We use Grip and E's from two different locations in Sweden as well. So now uh, the testing taking place at three places. Uh, this year, or was it early next year, we are planning delivery of another few airframes to Brazil. So it's uh, from development into more... Uh, delivery phase right now looking at okay. uh, so that's good so it's progressing quite well of course looking at all the other campaigns uh, there's canada's one there's uh, another few on group and cd potential customers out there no that's great and we're glad to help spread the word a little bit people can make informed decisions so mm -hmm. what else is there about the grip and e and if applicable anything about the f but what have i not asked you or what else would you want listeners to know i could actually mention about 
I pried the meteor missile, and I personally also uh, kind of worked with it. I could talk just a little bit about that one. Sure. So uh, started off uh, in uh, a test phase on instrumented gripping back in uh, sometime in 2010, if not earlier than that. And now been in service in Sweden since uh, 2016. I'll just see if I have it, have it somewhere, uh, some notes on what it actually would mean for the BVVR fight. Yeah, because that's always the goal, right? Is either a, a longer reach, like if you use a boxer analogy, if he's got a longer arm span, he can punch from further away, or if he's got a faster punch, it's going to help him against his opponent. So I'm sure you're looking at those kinds of matters. I think it's probably quite well known to the community by today already, but it's benefiting from propulsion during the whole flight, in contrary to maybe the more legacy boost coast type of missile. So also equipped with that dual data link, which has changed the BVR kind of fight a little bit. I think I would say it's an interesting anecdote made by a former air chief back in 2016. He said a bold statement, it's a game changer in the Baltics. And then he also said it's a black belt in Suhoi killing. We like that a lot. (laughs) But as a pilot sitting in the cockpit, and just looking, give you an example from cross-border training exercises with the Finns and Norwegians a few years back, which I mean, nowadays happen almost on a weekly basis. But you will see the weapon's full potential. Of course, you will be cuffed in the exercise not to use your whole weapon capability. And also, of course, you would not not want to give it away either. But looking at longer range and looking at the no escape zone uh, parameters, weapons engagement zone, you have a peak index target evasion. In fact, you just get blown away. This is really fighter pilots, air to air fighters friend, which is a really great, great capability. So loving it a lot. The other one was connectivity. And it's about really interoperability. And it's just to counter a lot of the messaging that goes out to just to say that, yeah, we're working on uh, connectivity and interoperability towards our NATO allies, and we've done that for more than 10 years now. I'll give you another example from when I was sitting in the cockpit once. uh, We integrated Link 16 from a white paper into a kind of a four-ship sortie in less than 24 months. And six months after this, we were sitting in a special exercise in my jet in pitch black darkness in the terminal control area of Albury Airport, flying with my buddy, where we had full Link 16 situation awareness, We had full digitally assisted cast to the ground and air traffic control was, by the way, trusting in our ability to the extent that we're sending out clearances over VHF guard to avoid from civilians. So it was really crazy, crazy. Mm -hmm. It made you really feel that, wow, this really works. This uh, works with our partners. You're on top of the world and you can proceed and do a good job in your cockpit. Like, just really like it. Well. You're probably fortunate to be working in this day in and day out, but I've been five years removed from flying a fighter. And the more I hear from folks like you where the community is going, I'm not sure I have the mental capacity anymore. It sounds like you have to be a chess player in multiple dimensions here. Uh, more so, again, going back to the World War One example where it was just about pulling Gs and leading your, your adversary with your mechanical machine gun. So fighter aviation has certainly changed. It has. It's not about flying and operating the system so much anymore. Now it's more about the procedures and the complexity of everything you need to be doing at the same time. Mm -hmm. Even if you have the world's best system doing it, but I think you require a lot of training to be able to do it in the way you really want to. So technology is one bit, but there's still training and uh, the human being in the cockpit is another thing. Well, for now, right? So we'll see how that (laughs) goes. We'll see, yeah, yes. All right, Miyagi. Well, first off, 
here in the States, I have flown a super version of an aircraft that's a little bit bigger and more capable, similar to the Gripen E compared to the Gripen C. And I noticed some differences when I flew it, but I've never flown the Gripen. What can you tell me about the differences between flying the Gripen E versus the C? Yeah, I've actually personally in this job now, I'm doing most, most of the kind of marketing support and uh, advisor role. So I haven't the chance to fly the Gripen E in its latest configuration, but I've flown the demo version with the new avionics and engine a few years ago. But I had a chat before this podcast with a very good friend of mine, Marcus Vant, who's the chief test pilot. And he said that like with 30% more fuel, that gives you a lot of more range and it gives mm-hmm. you the possibility to stay supersonic at a high altitude for much longer. That's kind of a notable difference. Um, the G414 engine instead of 404, which has now also been trimmed and gripenized to fit Gripen E, much better acceleration at lower angle of attacks, notable improvement. And also the uh, kind of maneuvering at higher AOAs gives you a little bit longer to maintain that speed and that uh, nose up moment that you're looking for in, in a fight. So that's trust and weight ratio, really. And then uh, the bulkiness, you could always argue that it gives you a lot of vibration and flow, but we haven't really seen a lot about that. But the last bit, which is also very important, is nil maneuvering restrictions with regards to G and AOA when airborne at first, even with the external stores, unlike many other, actually all other jets I've ever flown, which are the F-16s, F-15s, and many others as well. And that's all into reinforced structure of the wing couplings and other things. So that's kind of a pride-friendly like to bring up. So the Gripen E improves on the sea with more fuel, bigger engine, more weapon stations. You've got amazing situational awareness. It's built for the warfighter. It's very available and flexible, quick turnarounds. Yeah. Boy, this thing sounds like quite the aircraft. I mean, I, I, <laughs> anything else we need to mention about it before we wrap it up? Well, I think it's built for the concept of operation of your nation. It might not fit all uh, the requirements for every other nation. So I think it's always about talking about generations and what mm-hmm. is a kind of a generation-less capability or what is a capability or a technology. It's always about that. We believe in the, in the success story of our fighter to do the job in our concept of operations. And it's fighting independently without the support of coalition, which would have other assets. Uh, that said, I believe also in the concept of other kinds of designs in other kinds of concepts and operations. All right. Well, it sounds like an amazingly capable aircraft. Before we wrap up, though, you've listened to the show, so you know we have a little tradition here on our call signs. So tell us, please, how someone came up with Miyagi for UC Helmatoja. Yeah, I think over the years, there's been many funny stories, mm-hmm. eventful happenings, both in and out of cockpits, I'm sure, including maybe once or twice some perhaps late night drunken buffoonery. Could have <laughs> no, happened. no, no, never. No, no, never <laughs> happened. But I think this one has drawn maybe inspiration from my youth where I've always tried all kinds of sport. I wasn't great at everything. I'm a terrible golfer. Can't really skate or shoot even a ball straight. But there seemed to be only that one thing that I had some special aptitude and talent for, and that was martial arts. This story takes us to a short deployment at the tactical leadership program in Europe at Florian Air Force Base in Belgium, where it was based at the time, maybe 15 years ago. So after a relaxed early Monday night dinner with some mates at a picturesque nearby village of Dinant, on our way back to the hire car, some local thugs, they came up with this brilliant novel idea that our wallets and pilot model wristwatches would much benefit from a change of ownership. But... That's not the best course of action, maybe, in all these situations. Uh, for the kids out there who are listening, the best in that case is always to run and maybe run faster than the enemy. But this particular moment, there was no green lane offered, so uh, we had to do some within-visual-range combat. 
Fortunately, pretty soon, these uh, dudes reassessed situation to that of a knock-it-off call would be the next feasible course of action. So all ended well for us, at least, and we could bug out safely. So I guess uh, from the character, Mr. Miyagi character of the movies, I think that stuck. Yeah, from, uh, what was it, Karate Kid. So, okay. Only ever once I ever had to use any of those skills, and I'm well, hoping that will remain so. Better to have it, not need it, than need it, not have it, right? Oh, yes. Mm. Oh, dear. I take it you went home with the, uh, it was very diplomatically put story there, but you went mm. home with all the stores that you went out with, i.e. wallets and watches? Oh, yes, we could keep them. So, uh, like you said, it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. There you go. That's one uh, way to do it. Fantastic. All right, Miyagi. Well, thanks for stopping by and updating us on the Saab Gripen E Omni-Roll fighter today. I found that very interesting. Thanks. Yeah, it's been uh, great to speak to you. And uh, obviously, I have so much more to tell, but this was uh, hopefully, if anyone's interested, please find those websites and podcasts and uh, information. So thank you. Cheers. Cheers.